from the Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas, and my name is Emily Nicholl. Like my grandfather always said, if you want to cut a new bush, you've got to keep your bush knife sharp. And so you've got to keep your knowledge sharp, keep your skills sharp, be creative, but at the same time, don't forget where you come from. Raised between Darwin and his ancestral home of Gubba Gubba in Papua New Guinea, Iraleki Ingram was drumming from a young age. His grandfather taught him traditional techniques, igniting a love for percussion that led to a world tour with the Australian Youth Orchestra. Since then, Ira Leckie has played with some of our most prominent Indigenous musicians, soundtracked a Hollywood film and also scored an ARIA nomination. But it's his passion for making community through music that really drives Ira Leckie. Ira Leckie's latest collaboration is Sorong Samurai. It brings together a talented mix of musicians from across Oceania and is a rallying cry for freedom for West Papuans, sharing the unifying message, one people, one soul, one destiny. Ira Leckie, welcome to the podcast. Your family ties are to Gubba Gubba near Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea, but you were born in Australia raised between PNG and Darwin. You've spent time in far north Queensland and have also had stints in Melbourne. After all that moving around, tell us, where's your home ground? Hmm. Well, my home ground would be Gabba Gabba. That's uh, a village in Papua New Guinea. It's about one hour drive from Port Moresby. Mm -hmm. So that's where my mother's from. And, yeah, it's a... A village, it's a pretty big village. It's mm -hmm. about, population must be about 3,000 now. So it's right on the water. So half the village is out at the sea on like sort of jetties over the sea and then the rest is inland. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I still I have a house there. So I, you know, we have good internet and stuff. So I often just go there, work there. So straight after home ground, actually, I go back. Yeah, so. Do you have a spare room? <laughs> Sounds great. It's got Wi-Fi. <laughs> it's got Wi-Fi, you know. It's a modern village. But, um, yeah, that's Gabba Gabba. So in uh, a long time ago, well, not so long ago, it used to be the like a ceremonial ground for uh, a lot of drumming and singing and dancing because Gabba Gabba in English means drum drum. Uh -huh. So it was like the drumming village. So it must have a powerful um, feeling to it. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's home, you know. Yeah. And uh, my family in particular were the, I guess, the one of the strongest families of drumming from our village. And uh, my grandfather's generation were sort of the last of the great drummers and songmen. So I guess, you know, with modernization, Christianity, that, that sort of um, has died off quite a lot. Uh, so I'm sort of one of the people that are, you know, holding on to it. Mm, mm. Very important role that you're playing. Can we talk also about, so your name, Iriliki, has a significance in your family and also to the village? What does it mean? So Iriliki was the name of uh, one of my ancestors that actually founded our village. So going back uh, 18 generations, uh, three brothers, Iriliki, Loleke and Masarea Leke, they were origi originally from up near the Kokoda track. They were Koyari people, mm -hmm. mountainous people. And back then uh, there was probably, and still today, is quite um, 
a lot of violence and sorcery going on. So these three brothers apparently left to find a nice spot on the beach and start their own thing. And so that's what they did. And it became a, a hub of drumming and ceremony. Um, and so, yeah, that was Aireleke, that's my ancestor. And so I'm a direct descendant of him mm. and sort of named after him. But it's actually also my grandfather's name, my mother's father. So in our culture, we... Uh, we have a tradition of namesake, so we are always named after somebody. It's kind of like equivalent of like a godparent or something like that. Mm. And usually, you know, more often than not, you take on their a bit of their thing, you know, characteristics, whatever. Uh, so, you know, mm. people in my village sort of are not surprised that I, you know, became a drummer and obsessed with drumming and stuff because it's, you know, just like my namesake. <laughs> yeah. And what was it like being a kid in Papua New Guinea? What 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 are your uh, strongest memories of the place and also the people? I was born the same year as Papua New Guinea independence, so it was at a time where PNG nationalism was really um, starting. It, it didn't even exist, <laughs> you know. Before that, it was sort of a re- really new country, a very diverse country, and so my parents were very actually very strict with. Um, me and my siblings learning our own traditional culture, mm-hmm. like uh, like our Tokples, our language Motu, like, um, and not to speak Pidgin, a Creole sort of language, but mm-hmm. uh, and learn our traditional music and you know not listen to pop music or you know that kind of thing. So growing up, it was very strong in culture with my uh, my family. My parents are very strict with you know. <laughs> making sure we knew our our culture but you know that was back then it was like my earliest memories of village life was uh you know no electricity just generators kung fu videos you know reenacting it afterwards you know that kind of yeah <laughs> bruce lee movies <laughs> oh, yeah. all this kind of thing you know back in the late 70s you know early 80s so um yeah you know it's life's changed a lot now you know like like I said, you know, we've got Wi-Fi now. So. Yeah. <laughs> so are you are you grateful then for having that grounding in in traditional ways? Maybe at the time, you know, I wasn't. You know, yeah. But yeah, I I owe a lot, you know, to to that, you know, and so I also do the same with my kids now, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, just appreciating. In, one thing is, you know, to appreciate identity. And also understand that you you can create it yourself. And I think that's a really important thing to really respect your culture because I, I saw in my mum's generation and even within some of my own generation, they they abandoned a lot mm. you know, for modernization and for Christianity also. And and in that way they didn't value what they had. And me coming from our two countries. You know, I didn't care for modern stuff because in Australia I got access to whatever, everything. Mm. And so I go back to the village and all my cousins and that were like just wanting modern stuff, you know. And I was like, yeah, whatever, where's the drum? You know, I want, I wanted to get into the culture and this kind of thing. Mm. So I had this thing where, and I really became close to my grandfathers in that way and a lot of the elders in my village. And I became sort of one that they handed a lot of things to traditional knowledge traditional drumming traditional songs which was sort of dislocated from our people because of modern life in mm. png because we are motuans we are very close to 
Moresby. So, yeah, I guess I was just unique in that way, being mixed blood and being from two borders. It gave me a different perspective on yeah. on our own culture and how important it is. And did it come naturally to you? I mean, obviously they saw you wanted to pick up the drum, so they were compelled to to pass that knowledge on. Was it easy for you? I mean, it, it's, it is now. Mm. You know, you can tell you looks like you've been doing it forever, but did it come naturally? Uh, yeah, for the traditional stuff, I think it did. I, I, you know, it was from birth, you know. I don't really remember the first <laughs> the first time. It was like less than I was three or something. But mm. I have early memories of, uh, you know, my grandfather's drumming and all of that kind of thing. Um, but that was sort of always there, you know, like it was just always there from birth, you know. Mm. And the other more Western music, that was, you know, when I started getting educated in music and learning Western instruments like, um, you know, drum kit, uh, orchestral percussion and all that kind of thing and learning all about different uh, cultures, music. And, yeah, I think um, that was really, you know, challenging because that takes a lot of discipline, you know, just, you know, like any instrumentalist, you know, you have to put in the hours of practice and all that business. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't mm. happen overnight. I mean, even if it's in your blood, you've still got to... Mm. Still got to put those hours in for sure. Yeah. And your percussion that you just mentioned also helps you to get involved with the Australian Youth Orchestra. What was that experience like touring internationally with a full orchestra coming coming from such a traditional <clears throat> background? I spent quite a long time, a um, big chunk of my life in Darwin where I was doing all of that. You know, it was a very multicultural place, but also the size of the population. I mean, you can do traditional music, with your family, you can play reggae with a reggae band. I, I was playing in Aboriginal bands, you know, uh, getting deep into the Indigenous music scene and I was playing orchestra and learning classical music. In a place like Darwin, you don't have to specialise, you know, you can do all that. But, you know, coming, being raised with such hardcore sort of discipline, I just, I guess I just became quite skilled at all of it mm. or you know naturally but then also you know a lot of hours just practicing and so I, I got right into yeah the orchestral percussion and then I went to yeah you know and eventually ended up in the Australian Youth Orchestra and you know one of the last orchestral pieces I played was like you know the bass drum part of the Rite of Spring you know mm -hmm. and so just understanding that evolution of Western music um up to that point of, you know, Stravinsky and what that whole political aspect to Western music and culture and stuff, I just thought, you know, just sort of understanding how cultures evolve because Western music is, or Western culture, you know, it's all written so mm. you can get right deep into the narrative and everything that's happened, whereas ours is oral history and so yeah. you absorb it in a different way. Just learning about all those composers, you know, from Baroque to classical to romantic, you know, all the way up to Stravinsky and then beyond up to, you know, Australian composers, you know, Scolthorpe and Ross Edwards, like the percussion, especially the real percussive stuff. It was, yeah, it was really interesting to me. It came to a point, though, where I had to, like, yeah, I kind of thought I moved away from it again because uh, I didn't really relate much anymore to that. I just thought I had a, a different calling, you know, to do go back to my roots and do my my music mm. because there's not a lot of space for creativity when you're uh, you know in a percussion section in a 
hundred piece orchestra. An orchestra. You just do what <laughs> the music imagine. says, follow the dots on the page, you know, and be good at it. Otherwise, you'd be out pretty quick. Yeah. I otherwise, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, go do something else. Yeah. <laughs> Musically, I just had a story to tell. You know, I had uh, my own story to tell, my own people's story to tell. So, mm. kind of took that skill and that knowledge and sort of use it in um, to tell our story. At that time as well, you were working with the Yothi Indi and Bart Willoughby, Wildwater, Dr G and uh, Yiramal. What was it like touring? Were you touring at the same time as, as doing that or did you come back to that? I was a reggae drummer. I love reggae music, but I had to just shelve that for a little while and go on tour with, the, you know, play Stravinsky and all that kind of thing, so, which is, you know, similar actually. So. Yeah, I, I grew up playing all that, you know, deep immersed into the indigenous music scene in Darwin. And then, um, but, you know, I came back to it for sure. And then, um, you know, I ended up, yeah, playing with Yoti Indi for a few years. I was the percussionist and then fill in drummer. Mm-hmm. And, but there was a point there where there was, I think, most of the band were Papua New Guineans, uh, like, Myself, I was on uh, percussion. Ben Hakalitz on drum kit from Bougainville. Mm-hmm. Burukatao on keyboards from Tubusarea village. And then Stewie, the original bass player, uh, born in Wiwak. That's incredible. I don't, that's not very widely <laughs> known, I don't think. <laughs> it's a secret. Yeah, it's a secret. It's really interesting, but, yeah. So, you know, there's always been a close, uh, you know, I think uh, a connection and affection too between you know, uh, Indigenous Australian, Papua New Guinea, because mm. we are next door neighbours, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So what did you pick up from these amazing performers that you were surrounded by at that time? Well, of course, you know, old man, uh, you know, you know, Pingu was, you know, his legacy and I, I could, it just resonated with all of us around the Pacific, you know, the call for treaty, you know. Uh, I come from Papua New Guinea. We are an independent nation uh, and a former colony of Australia. And so we really wanted that. As a Papua New Guinean, you know, I felt like I really wanted that for Australia too because you can feel you feel it differently, your identity, your nationality. It's, mm. This country, it's such a, an amazing country in so many levels, not only its multiculturalism and its, you know, may, you know, one of the biggest economies on the planet, but the indigenous culture I think is been really, um, you know, for a long time really trampled on, you know, it's been colonised. Indigenous people have a legacy of, um, and this is what I learned from Yoti Indi, was a legacy of sort of law and custodianship over land, not pure exploitation of land for, you know, money, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a, yeah, as a Papua New Guinean young sort of, you know, I was like mid-20s in the band and stuff, and so I was sort of just learning heaps of stuff, just absorbing it, I guess. Yeah. Um, had my own political ideas, but um, Dr. You know, Pingu was um, a real inspiration, you know, and mm-hmm. my father actually had an even closer connection than me because he was – the reason why we went to Darwin was he was uh, – my father was uh, uh, involved in a bachelor college there where he graduated from, and so I was quite – quite close to um, the Yolongo community and, you know, the top end there. Mm. So, and, yeah, just that that 
what was going on there in the community land rights movement and all that kind of thing. Um, just that connection between Arnhem Land, West Papua and Papua New Guinea, I was sort of, uh, that that was really my life with those three sort of uh, mm. uh, places, you know, and um, very different stages in their movement of self-determination. Mm. And, you know, just how hard the struggle is, it also makes people strong. And I think we need that. People, strong people will help other people become strong. And I think um, for me, uh, a treaty in this country or indigenous sovereignty being respected in this country will also help us in Papua New Guinea. Mm. And also West Papua, if we find the courage and the strategy to, you know, help West Papua to get to that point, it'll benefit all of us. And that explains well why you, you kind of had that that feeling and that notion that traditional music was so vital as well, even though you say, you know, in your own country, you know, you're brought up with that, but here it's still something that's being understood. And so that traditional sense comes into your music as well, but also hip hop and reggae. What what else have you listened to that's shaped your sound? Well, I guess I got deep into making beats because, you know, drama, I think that just grew out of being a drummer. Yeah, and so I got into making beats on MPCs and electronic music, not so much laptop music, but you know MPC music, you know. And I was, you know, just probably one of every other producer out there that became obsessed with producers like Diller or you know um, Dre or you know all those MPC-based producers, even Sly and Robbie or like from dub to hip-hop, just just sample-based production. And then I, I, so I moved to Melbourne uh, about 2006 and started a band with DJ Dexter from the Avalanches. Mm. And that threw me deeper into sample-based sort of production. And I mean, Dexter is just an absolute freak on vinyl. You know, he was DMC champ, you know. He was like world-class DJ. And so I started understanding music in a whole different level working with Dexter. Sample-based production is like collage music. So you're kind of chopping this and that and stringing them together. And, and you can do anything with that. Like, So what I chose to do there was not sample other people's music. I started sampling my own music and <clears throat> like Papua New Guinean artists, Papua New Guinean music and traditional music. And we didn't have recordings of like traditional drums, so I record the drums. But then I sample them and treat them like you would sample a, a James Brown hook or something. Just using the techniques of hip hop, but sampling our legends, our artists like the Brack Brothers from West Papua or Judge Telek, yeah. or um, you know those kind that kind of approach. Very cool. So I guess more freedom. You're after more freedom from being a drummer and just playing music to then producing what you wanted to listen to. I guess, and the sampling led you to kind of a brush with fame after something was picked up by a Hollywood producer. What was that experience like? Uh, yeah, that was kind of random. Um, it was really a cool experience, actually. Uh, I worked with um, Andrew Lockington, who does a lot of Hollywood blockbuster kind of adventure movies. And so the movie was Journey to Mysterious Island with Dwayne Johnson. In it. I think it's, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. okay. So I, was, I helped with the soundtrack on that one. So I, me and Andrew... Like he contacted me and said, oh, I'm looking for the oldest drumming in the Pacific. You know, he had this thing. He just wanted this. He thought there might be some, you know, something there. 
I was like, yeah, cool. And so like a month later, we were going down the Sipik River and I was taking him to this house Tambaran, the men's longhouse, and they have this ritual there. And it's probably the oldest drumming in the Pacific and probably one of the oldest drummies in the world. And it's deeply embedded in Sipik ritual and philosophy on the world and sort of cosmology. They're, they're similar to the Yolngu people, actually. Mm. The society is in two moities, uh, the sun people and the moon people. So they have these two drums, giant log drums, and they play like this uh, drumming that goes nonstop, like continuously for three days. And there's a team of drummers on one. They represent the moon, the night people. And the other team of drummers represent the day. And they just play the same thing. One sort of echoes the other one. And it represents the oscillation of night and day, the duality of the universe, and masculine and feminine. And so the rhythm, sort of this triplet rhythm that sort of oscillates, one one echoes the other one, so it's like quite trancy. So it's like a and you just it's quite hypnotic. And so I take this guy here from Hollywood, and we're sitting in the house Tambaran, and it's like. You know, he's got all the recording things. And then it's the first time it's been recorded. Oh, wow. It's never yeah. been recorded. And that was the whole process. Like the CPICs are so guarded, you know. Mm. But I had a, you know, have long history with them also and family connection stuff. So that took a little while of negotiating how it's going to happen and all that business. And then, but they were cool. It was all cool. But that drumming is like at the start. And the first few hours, you hear the rhythms, right? You hear that, you know, after six hours, it starts to be quite oppressive, you know, it starts to like just overwhelming, you know, and then after a day, it's like another level and then, you know, you start to hear it differently. So, And then the drumming, it becomes more like a gateway to, to uh, consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so this guy comes and he's, and I was like, yeah, that, is that what you're looking for? That? <laughs> <laughs> is this good enough? <laughs> and it was yeah. like, uh, it actually kind of wasn't, you know, it was like, oh, that's just too much. But I think it, it definitely inspired a lot of, so that ended up being in sort of transferred. And there was other, I took him to Manus. So we went to the Manus area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we, a lot we can say about Manus, but the Manus Karamut drumming is probably the most virtuosic in Papua New Guinea and it's more like ensemble drumming and it's celebratory and this kind of thing. So we recorded some of that and then we recorded some of my music, my own original drumming and then we sort of came up with a soundtrack, like an orchestral version of that and so he came back at me and was sending me some recordings and I was like, far out, man. Like the London Symphony Orchestra were playing these rhythms and... uh. It was mixed in Abbey Road, you know, in London. So mm-hmm. it's like crazy budget, you know, this Hollywood budget. It's like, man, give me some of that, <laughs> man. What the heck? And so that was kind of a bit bizarre. But um, the music that it came out with also tells a Hollywood story. So it's, you know, it's whatever, doing that. But just that process was just amazing to be, you know, to go from that, that house Tamboran to Abbey mm-hmm. Road with the London Symphony playing it was um, quite a trip, you know. It is a bit of a trip. <laughs> you can't make that stuff up, you know. You can't you can't see one step, you know, logically, but how incredible. <laughs> That's music, you know. You follow yeah. the life force of music, you know, and it's, 
you know, the, well, there's a saying, you know, it goes, um, if you follow the life force of music, it's like being on a strange journey from which only sleep can wake you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that drumming's a bit like that sometimes. Yeah, it's a doorway, <laughs> isn't it? I, a drumming is, is a doorway. Well, I guess for many cultures it is, you know. Mm. It's not only the sipics, it's it has been for, it's like gospel. It's like, you know, mm. so what we do with it, we, it's like how the Hammond organ came from gospel, left the church and became blues and then reggae and then everything else. Mm. And so our cultures, I see, I feel it in a similar way. You know, we have our marais or our house tambourines where we have our ritual drumming and songs. Mm. And we kind of only knew it's only really fresh out of there. Yeah. And now it's on the stage. Now we're mixing it up with you know, whatever we're doing right now, like you said, reggae, hip-hop, that kind of thing. Mm. Do women drum as well or is this just a male? In Well, in the traditional context, like at, in the CPIC, that's definitely that's a men's business. Um, but in Manus, like now, like my group, um, it's more secular drumming, so it's definitely uh, there's more women drumming, there's young girls drumming. Like I'm here with my daughter, I've been training her up. She's 12 now. This is her second tour. So Fantastic. she's been drumming. Um, but, yeah, definitely there's, it's been male-dominated for a while, but there's no rule against women drumming. So the girls have started to pick up sticks. And there's a, mm-hmm. one of my favourite drumming groups is called Palawai Suksuk, and they're based in Port Moresby. And Palawai Suksuk, and they're based in Port Moresby. And, um, yeah, quite a few of the... Uh, young girls now have, have learnt and they're really good mm-hmm. and so you know my daughter's one of them my you know and her mom's also a drummer and my sister's a drum uh, and so definitely it's on like that that's great to hear <laughs> still producing soundtracks for film, TV, theatre and dance um, for SBS TV, you've done The Straits, Kokoda, a whole, whole range of things, Dolphin Guide, Brand New Day as well. This is still a big part of, of what you're doing creatively? Yeah, well, I've had music that was placed in the in some of those. I didn't right. necessarily do the whole soundtrack. A lot of that was David Bridie actually. Who, mm. um, we started One Talk Music Foundation together mm. about, about 10 years ago now. I've always, you know, been into doing theatre and dance and, um, yeah, of course, film, yeah, screen stuff. How did One Talk Music come about? I moved down to Melbourne in about 2006. David and I co-founded One Talk Music Foundation. We set it up as a not-for-profit record label and in the early days it was artists like George Telek, um, Richard Mogul, uh, Nairi, uh, I signed her up to One Talk. That was her first record on One Talk, and then she off took off. Uh, there's now she's still like going. Oh, yeah. yeah, she's amazing. Mm. And so Radical Sun now, more recently. Um, there, oh, there's many now. Uh, I left One Talk about 2015, went back to Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. and sort of you know, I also do my own thing. But One Talk's just firing on. Yeah, it's a great initiative to um, to keep releasing and promoting. Music from here as well as Melanesia and um, the Oceania. The Rise of the Morning Star project began in 2012 and has followed suit. Can you talk a bit about that and how that's tied in with the West Papuan uh, movement as well? Mm. So 
Rise of the Morning Star was a an idea that I started, you know, with a good friend of mine, Ronnie Karenin, and I moved to Melbourne the same time as the forty three refugees from West Papua came. So I was looking for Papua New Guineans or Melanesians to hang out with, and then, you know, next minute I find these West Papuans and was hanging out, and then start hearing the stories of why they fled. But I never really knew the extent of what was going on until I had, you know, face-to-face conversations with these guys. After a few years, you know, Ronnie and I started Rise of the Morning Star, which is a movement for West Papua, but using music as our, I guess, our weapon of choice, you know. We help and support and help fundraise for citizen journalism and Mm. getting information out. But our main focus is uh, using music as our, not only a platform, but a way to engage with West Papuans and get everyone sort of singing about it, you know. So we, we part of what we do is we send information to some of our favorite artists mm-hmm. and we say, hey, you know, do you know about this? You know, like, check this out, you know. And then we have other projects that are uh, things like um, just cultural activities. So one of the projects we do is we're building drum houses in, in West Papua and Papua New Guinea. So we have a project, it's not really a project, it's a movement called a Thousand Drum are the a thousand tifa, mm-hmm. and tifa is the name of the drum, and so we're building tifa houses to start making our drums again. Rise, we really felt like we needed to move forward with um, culture, you know, uh, use our culture for a purpose. Mm. You know, I, I spent many years, you know, doing <coughs> cultural stuff for entertainment. Mm-hmm. When I learned about West Papua for the first. You know, when I started to learn about it, I, it was like an awakening. You know, I realized, well, shit, what am I doing about that? I mean, why am I playing this traditional drum? You know, what's the purpose when this is happening? If it's somebody like me in West Papua is killed for it, like mm-hmm. Arnold App, I learned about Arnold App. He was just doing what I was doing, you know, like learning traditional music, uniting our people with our culture. And that's enough reason to be hunted and killed in West Papua because mm. that unites cultural opposition to the the Jakarta's rule, if you like. Yeah, powerful. So almost exactly one year ago, you released Sorong Samurai, uh, December 1. What's the significance of that day for Papua New Guineans? Well, December 1 is West Papua National Day. Uh, West Papua was prepped for independence by the Dutch. And what happened on December 1 or what followed after that was um, West Papua was basically invaded by Indonesia and the the U.S. basically and the United Nations said, no, you you know, these people are entitled to a referendum. That happened. It was a sham referendum. Like, you know, 1,000 people, 1,024 people were picked, handpicked and intimidated. And, of course, they unanimously voted to stay with Indonesia. It wasn't a one-man, one-person vote. It was handpicked. And that sham referendum is still held up today by America, by Australia, by the world. And so ever since then, West Papuans have been fighting. And so December 1 is the... National Day for West Papua is when the officially the flag and the national anthem and the coat of arms were launched. 
And so it still felt like that's that's the day. Yeah. And so I chose that day to release some, yeah, Sorong Samurai to mark the day. Well, what was it like to have Benny Wender um, involved in, or how significant was that for you to have Benny Wender involved in the project? Benny Wender came to Melbourne. I met him in Melbourne um, after he got off the Interpol list, which is, you know, he was dodgy that he was on it anyway. But after that was all sorted, he came through and I met him in Melbourne and uh, he brought with him some music from home and some lungik music from Wamena. And we just hung out for a while and then um, just created this song together. He brought this music that from the highlands of West Papua and I never heard anything like it. And so, you know, straight up just sampled it and just had a jam with it in the studio and came up with Sorong Samurai. Following that, we went back to Papua New Guinea. So I took Benny up to Port Mosby. And that was his first time to come back there for a long time and met with Powers Pakop. And officially the the governor of Port Moresby in 2012 on December 1 officially raised the Morning Star flag. And that caused a major um, sort of diplomatic issue there. Mm. Benny, of course, was sort of blacklisted after that, deported, whatever, and it still remains so. That created a major situ- sort of fallout, I guess, between the governor of Moresby and the prime minister. Mm. But, um, you know, it was good because Papua New Guinea was sort of uh, woken up to what was going on across the border. And so Benny came up with this phrase, Sorong Samurai, or it was, it was going around, Sorong Samurai. When you say Sorong Samurai in Papua New Guinea, we know what that means. When you say it in West Papua, they know what that means. It sort of resonates with decolonization of our land because we are one people. And so Benny, yeah, I mean, he's a real inspiration, I guess, being a, a strong leader for the West Papuan people, um, but also very humble. He's the spokesperson of the ULMWP, which is the United Liberation Movement of West Papua. And the w- world, especially the Pacific, have really rallied behind that now, and that's... I guess the political architecture that um, we is sort of um, championing the um, the movement, mm. and so we, I guess, sort of just support that with music. Really important. We talk a bit about the film clip for the song. How high were the stakes going into that project? Given that filming a lot of these things are seen, and, and journalists are not really given access to this mm. area. I guess we were making a music video. We're not journalists. We're just making a music video. So we went there and we were filming dance groups and musicians and just wanted to capture the beauty of the place too. So, you know, we went to Raja Ampat. Raja Ampat is like uh, just the most unbelievably beautiful island. Like it's just amazing. That's at the top near Sorong. So we went to Sorong, film in Sorong, which is the uh, northwest top of uh, West Papua. Mm-hmm. You know, went through West Papua a little bit, Jayapura, the capital, and Biak, one of the islands. And then we crossed the border into Papua New Guinea, into Sipik, and went down all the way to the bottom where Samurai is. Samurai is an island. We went into the highlands of Papua New Guinea, recorded some flute stuff and some this amazing dance group from Madang Highlands. Then we went to Port Moresby and got the rest of the stuff in Moresby and in my village. And... um also down here in Sydney, got Albert David and the 
Um, Rowan Brothers were did their bits here in Sydney mm. and Redfern, I think. Mm. And so, yeah, it was just amazing to see our whole island go from, you know, to travel from tip to tip, from Sorong to Samurai. Um, yeah, I mean, we're such a diverse people, you know. We, West Papua and Papua New Guinea together, we speak over 1,000 languages, like it's a fifth of the whole planet's languages. Wow. And okay. extremely diverse, you know. And so, uh, but at the same time, we are very much one people. You know, we you know we call each other one talk, which means you know one language. We speak the mm-hmm. same language, even though we don't. We have they speak Bahasa, we speak Tokbizin or in English, because we've been isolated from each other for so long. Mm. But um, you know, through music and through this journey, and like that's what Sorong Samara is about is about you know breaking down that isolation that was imposed on us, mm. and sort of. Um, yeah, just remembering who we are. You know, we are Sorong to Samurai. We are one people. And that border was put there by people who colonized us. Mm. And not only, did, not only did they colonize us, but they isolated us from each other. And so I think music's a really powerful way to, you know, just reunite because we share so much in common. Mm. And one of those things is our drums. That's the beautiful thing about drumming, I guess. Yeah, you can go anywhere in the world, and but especially you know has that uniting culture about it, mm. especially yeah. for, for places that have been divided. feeling like now in PNG with your family and with your collaborators um, with the focus that's happening there at the moment? Has the movement grown? Do you see the movement growing? Yeah. Well, the West Papua movement absolutely has just in the last five years, I think, has really taken off, I guess, around the world. You know, there's and that's probably mostly to do with social media and the rise of citizen journalism inside West Papua. I think um, one of the places that's really woken up to it is the Pacific. And I think um, countries like Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, um, Tonga have really got behind West Papua now. So mm-hmm. our next performance after here is in Vanuatu uh, for a festival there called Fesnap One and um, the mini Pacific Games. Mm. So it's going to be cool to take this back to, you know, Vanuatu again. Uh, we go there quite a bit, but yeah, it's always fun to go there. To go there. Yeah. And here in Australia, what's been the feedback and reaction from people at your shows? Do they have lots of questions? Because there's not many, many groups doing West Papuan or like PNG music. Yeah, that's right. Um I mean, there is interest in it. There's a lot of interest in now that the artists themselves are being sort of revealed a bit, like especially the Rowem brothers who were part of that 43 who came here and, you know, their their story and just their vibe, you know, they're such like they just radiate with just happy guys, you know, they're just joyous to watch them dance. Mm-hmm. At the same time they they have something to say, you know, and they and they – they dance with purpose. And I think that was a big thing I learned from and that what they speak about, like especially Yoshi, you know, they speak about like 
they came here on a boat, you know, they in 2006, you know, 43 of them lost at sea for five days, but they made it here. And, and just surviving that mm-hmm. gives you a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't come here to make trouble. You don't come here to nothing. You need just... And so they live their life with that. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in their dance. You can feel it in their dance. You know, they don't... And, of course, they bring bring an issue that needs to be addressed. It needs to be talked about. And um, I think they do an amazing job with that, just expressing it as artists, as dancers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really powerful. I saw you guys um, up at Boomerang, which is part of Blues Fest, mm-hmm. and incredible, absolutely. What are your hopes for both PNG and Australia in the future? You kind of touched on that before in wanting more recognition and, you know, sovereignty. Is that that's what you see? For the future? Yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The, there's, well, there's potential, so much potential for Papua New Guinea. And I think Australia, I'd like to see just a better understanding and a better relationship that's from the grassroots, not from the top. The top always have the agenda. Mm. And the potential of Papua New Guinea in terms of like tour, tourism or cultural tourism is so huge. But what's going on right now, especially in Manus and the role that Papua New Guinea and Manus has played is we have become a deterrent for Australia's agenda. Mm-hmm. And how we have been framed, how Manus has been framed as this place that you do not want to be is just completely untrue and it's wrong and it's pure exploitation of Manus and of the people and the truth of who these people of Manus mm-hmm. is, you know. And the outbreaks of violence and these kind of things have all, I believe, is all been by design because we ha- Manus had to play that role of being the deterrent. And I don't think that's fair at all and it's not based on any kind of truth. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's it's in the benefit of everyone, I believe, that Australia sorts its identity identity crisis out because um, until, I believe, until this backyard here in Australia is sorted out, it's gonna, it affects the region. It's like a, a sickness. And I think um, Indigenous sovereignty being recognised here, not just given lip service, but, you know, whether that's constitutional recognition but or what, whatever it is, I think the voices of the indigenous people and the custodians of this land needs to also dominate, mm-hmm. not just be given lip service. And I think that perspective is really special and that perspective is really, I think, something that we all need. It's not just about correcting rights or wrongs of the past and, you know, about uh, it's not only about that. Mm. I think we all need it because it, it, it just it's good for you. You know, how you, how you relate to land, how you relate to family, how you relate to each other, you know, and how you, what the mechanisms you have at that level for healing, for progressing as a person, you know. All those things are old. They've been tried and tested for tens of thousands of years and it still works. Mm-hmm. And so we should respect that, you know, not, not uh, damage it. Mm-hmm. And I think Indigenous sovereignty is, yeah, for everyone. So... That's what I would like to see as a Papua New Guinean because Australia t- will treat us differently if they sort that shit out. Mm-hmm. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ariliki, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure talking to no you. Worries. Thank you. Thank you. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. This season features guests from Homeground Festival and it was hosted by me, Emily Nicholl. It's produced and edited by Susie Anderson. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiraway and our executive producer is Edwina Throsby. For more Sydney Opera House podcasts, visit sydneyoperahouse.com forward slash ideas or subscribe to It's a Long Story wherever you get your podcasts. Yawa, and until next time. 